I want to ask every one of you here who's able to understand my question, how'd you get here? Some might say you drove, well, probably I would guess every one of us, <laughs> or were riding in the car, or drug along, <laughs> forced in some way, maybe a parent saying, you're coming to church to one of the children. But you made it here by choice. And this morning, Jimmy didn't have to say the prayer that he said. He chose to say those very words. And even some of the words that he said, he might say, well, I might rephrase it one way or another based upon, and I do that with sermons and articles I write. But we choose them, every one of us. And I'd venture to say that at, toward the end of his prayer, when he asked our God to intervene, he chose those words. Because he wants God to come into the affairs of men. Every one of those things that we just talked about deals with God's providence. When we talk about providence, this is not an easy subject, in my opinion. Because you've got people on the left hand and people on the right hand going back and forth saying, no, you've gone too far to the left or too far to the right. And we have this difficult balance in the middle with regard to the subject matter. So I was thinking about an illustration. What illustration could I use um, for this? And, and I thought, well, I'd like to think of, you know, with the family relationship where you've got parents and the father's the head of the household and from a biblical standpoint. And so we, we look at these things and say, well, how could I use providence to illustrate what we're talking about in this? I thought, all right, we're going to take a trip. So dad decides we're going to go on vacation. And as a result of this decision, he knows that within the family, there's going to be sons and daughters, and some of them don't, won't want to go. Others might want to go, but they might want to go someplace else. And others are all on board with it. So you've got a whole gamut, and each person has their own feelings and their own decisions on what they want to do. But guess what? Dad says we're going on the trip. Everyone's going to go whether they like it or not. So in the midst of this trip preparation, he decides to call the travel agency, the airlines, he calls uh, the rental car company and, and gets everything set in order. And there may be mishaps along the way. Maybe for some reason, he's not able to get the, the agency that he wants. And so he chooses another um, car rental company. And then the flights just don't work out in that instead of having a direct flight, they're going to have to have layovers. But when all is said and done, the trip come and it goes just as given by foresight. That, in a very simplistic way, is providence. You're looking at some thought that you have, looking down the road, and that's where providentia comes, right? It's a Latin word, and, and you're looking into the future on what you want to accomplish, and you use what means that is at your disposal to see that your will is, in fact, accomplished. That's the whole concept of providence. And, of course, when we're talking about God's providence, he has at his disposal, just as Jimmy mentioned in prayer, the laws of nature. But he has something beyond the laws of nature. He's got his sovereignty. In other words... As a father, I can force my children to go, but one of my children might decide to run away. And if I can't find them, they can't go on the trip. 
I don't have full sovereignty over my children's lives. Not in the same way that God does over mine or yours. And so God has his disposal, the natural laws that he set in motion as was given in the prayer, but he also supersedes the laws of nature. And he acts and interacts and overrules things that go on in our lives. There are ample scriptures, tons of scriptures that make this clear. I want to begin by looking at Romans 9, and then we're going to look at this concept and look at the illustration given by the book of Esther. And I feel so bad about the sermon being this morning, not because I don't want to give it, because I had a little girl that asked for the sermon. (laughs) And I wish Janie Beth could be here so she could hear this lesson because she was wanting a sermon on Esther. And I thought, what a great sermon. And so we're looking at this book, but I want to begin by looking at Romans chapter 9 because this is a passage that is so difficult, I think, for us as Christians. Because we don't want to go so far over to one side where we look at man and some people tell us that we have no choice in the matter, that God chooses and, and therefore those who are going to be saved have no choice in the matter. They're just going to believe in God. And those that want to believe but God did not choose them to believe, you have no hope. That's the one extreme side. On the flip side, it's as if we have all the choice in the world and God can do nothing. It's all about us. And we go from one extreme to the other. Well, let's look at the passage here in in Romans 9 because there's a a lot being said with regard to the sovereignty of God. And when we look at this, hopefully we'll see it illustrated in the book of Esther. Beginning in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh... For this purpose, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? With a thing formed, say to the thing who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. See, when you read a passage like this, this is one of those that many brethren don't want to read. Because it sounds so much like we have no choice in the matter. And that's why the, the response might have been, well, why have you made me like this then? I mean, if you made me this way, then really I have no choice. And how can you find fault in me because I have no choice? Naturally, 
this is the same apostle, when writing to the saints, told them, you from your heart obeyed that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. What he is saying is, you have your will, and God has his. And God's sovereignty, however, will overrule even the choices that you make at times, because he is God. And he's going to accomplish his purpose for his glory. Now, are you going to, with your heart, succumb to that form of doctrine that he desires for you to live? Are you going to present your bodies as living sacrifices, choosing from your free will the will of God, to live in harmony with it? And you see, when we look at the scriptures all from the very beginning, from from Genesis chapter one, you see God's sovereignty. You, You see God overruling because he's the creator. He made everything. And then from the beginning all the way through history, you can see time and time again, countless examples in the Bible of him doing this. And one of the great illustrations is found in the book of Esther. Now, the reason why I don't have a PowerPoint this morning is there's just so much detail, so many things that I want to go and I'm going to go really quick through the story of Esther. And then we're going to come back and hit these highlights. And I want you to see how some of these details that are found in the book of Esther All nine of those chapters give you an illustration of God's providence. But what I like about Esther is that when this book was written or when this was taking place, either one, you're talking about a time in which God has by now pretty much been very quiet with his nation. I mean, the fact that we have Esther means he's still speaking naturally. But we're talking about an era where we're coming to an end and what we call the the new era of silence, where he goes 400 years without making himself revealed, not by way of divine inspiration, that is, to man. And yet this book serves as transition for that era, I believe, because we're talking about a time in which they're in exile. The people of God have been in exile for a while. And where is God to be found? He's so far from my life. He's so far from the lives of us as Jews. That's the setting of this book. And if you'll note, not once is God's name even mentioned in this book. Reflective of this very era. Now, that said, I want to quickly go through these things. In the first chapter, we begin with, here is King Ahasuerus, and he is is such a... In this kingdom where he has 127 provinces. I want to make sure I get my Bible open to that text as well. And with these 100 or uh, 127 provinces, what you have is reigning from, from one end of the world to the other as they would know it. And in these 127 provinces, in the third year of his reign, he is now having a banquet, a feast, a great feast for all the nobles to see how great a king he is and a kingdom he has. And so a half a year goes by, 180 days of continual feasting. And at the end of those 180 days, he turns around and for all those in Susa, in in the city, he has another party, if you will. It lasts for seven days. And for seven days, from the least to the greatest, everyone was allowed to come in and enjoy from the king's provisions. And he did not make uh, any compulsory type of um, eating and drinking. It was whatever your heart desired. And no telling what that looked like. 
on the seventh day of feasting. While he's feasting, his wife is having another party. It's for the, the women. It's in the king's palace. And Vashti has all this going on with the ladies. And in the meantime, the king decides, I want to show the beauty of my bride to everyone. And for the debate that says he was doing out of his drunkenness, he's making her naked, I, all kinds of commentaries on this. And I don't know what, what's going on. I don't know what his state of mind is. Is he fully drunk? Like, drunk and drunk? Or is he merry with wine? I, I don't know to what extent. All I know is he asks for her. She refuses to come. And it is his own princes that tell him, listen, this just is not acceptable. If she serves as an example to all the other women, guess what's going to happen? All the women are going to start not listening to their husbands. And so they convince the king out of his anger and with his anger that they should have Vashti replaced. And that takes us then into the, the second chapter. I better get over in with y'all with the book here. And with this second chapter, he has his eunuchs to go throughout all 127 provinces. And they're going to look for the most beautiful virgins. And they're going to choose virgins from every province. And they're going to bring all of them and put them into this one area of, of this home where they're going to have these women, I don't know, for lack of a better term, prepared for him. And so they get pampered. And one by one, they go in to be with the king and they're able to, to request something from the king. But of all the, the young virgins there was this young Jewish girl. Her name is Esther. She's a beautiful Jewish girl. She wins the heart of the eunuch who is in charge of the women. And because she finds favor in his eyes, he requests to her what to ask for, how to behave before the king, so as to find favor even with the king. And in fact, that's exactly what happens with this girl. Of all the people in this empire i don't know if we're talking millions of people i i don't know what the odds are but it's an amazing thing this one girl who's a jew is able to be before the king and he likes her well in the meantime while this takes place we learn of mordecai relative who raised esther because her parents had died in this exile and he of all people sits at the king's gate and day in and day out, people come and go. He's there at the gate. What do you do every day at the gate? You sit down and, I mean, how do you get work done? <laughs> but he's there at the gate. And one day, he hears of a plot. This plot is to assassin the king. And when Mordecai hears of it, he goes and tells Esther of what takes place. And so here is Esther. She has now been made queen. And in here, she hears of this news and word gets to the king. And then it's written in the book of Chronicles for the king of what Mordecai had done. But just as surely as it was written, it's forgotten. Time goes on and we meet up with another person. We meet of Haman. And Haman is one of those servants that, that um, the king has risen up Second in command, if you will, only slightly lower than the king. He's got all authority. And in fact, 
the signet ring from the king is eventually given to him. Well, one of the things that the king does is he makes sure that everyone bows down before Haman. And everyone does, except for who? Mordecai. This lowly Jew living in exile will not bow down to Haman. And this gets under his skin. And so, not only is he upset with with Mordecai, but this anger festers so much within him, he wants all Jews, every one of them, annihilated. Does this sound familiar in modern history? Maybe for different reasons. He wants all Jews throughout all the empire, all 127 provinces, destroyed. All because of one person. I say it's a little drastic. And I say, what's going on? How is it that that God is, is going to have control over his people if they're going to be destroyed? And here's the choice of men coming into play. All throughout this time. All these details that are that in and of itself may seem disconnected, but are weaving through the story of God's unfolding plan of scheme of redemption. And it's a plot within a plot within a plot, if you will, over that overriding theme. And so that's what we have here going on. Well, long story short, so I can move along with the story, is that Esther hears of this, Mordecai hears of of this, and, and pretty soon word is spreading, Jews are going to be killed. And everyone is worried. And Mordecai is wondering what's going to happen. And this is what was read for us by Grayson this morning in the fourth chapter. Because what we have now in the third chapter is Haman choosing a particular day. But not just choosing any old way. He cast lots. And out of 12 months of the year, the lot has been cast. On the 12th month of that particular year, all Jews on a particular day are going to be destroyed. What's interesting is that when you cast Lot, it was with the mindset of destroying these Jews. And so it's from a word in the Babylonian word, Puru. Aramaic has their own words, similar to what we have for the Hebrew for pure. P-U-R, that is. I don't know how they pronounce it. But it's cast against the Jews that they would be destroyed. And that's a word that's going to come up again in this story. And we're going to see a derivative of it, even in Greek, mind you, and how it plays an important part in God's providence. Well, we continue on the story, and here, when word is given, Mordecai sends to Esther what's going to take place, and she's replying, well, what can I do? No one can go before the king. Anyone that goes before the king, and except there's not given over to, to, to that person, that person's going to be killed. And the famous words that Grayson read for us was found in that fourth chapter. I want to reread those words because I think they're so central to God's providence. Again, verse 10 of chapter 4, Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called but has one law, death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these last 30 days. 
So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any of all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent, if you choose the path of silence, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Do you suppose that Mordecai believed in God's providence? Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom to be in this position of queen, if you will, for such a time as this? Well, hearing the words of Mordecai, Esther decides, all right, here's what I want. I want everyone in the city to be fasting for the next three days. And I will fast too. Then I'm going to go to the king. And if I go to the king and he doesn't hold out the golden scepter and if I need to die, then I die. She is willing, willing to risk her own life with the possibility that she could go before a king who is not called for her and then make a request of the king. That's an amazing circumstance Brethren, I think we have a difficult time understanding this. You know, for us, we think, well, we might have security guards that won't let us go and see the president of the United States. But imagine being able to go before a king where you have an easy policy that says, if I don't hold out my golden scepter, you die. We don't have that law here in this country. We might have security service and what have you, protecting the president. But this is foreign to us, in some small way at least. And so here we have this story, and it continues on, that while this is going on, Haman still gets so upset with, with Mordecai not wanting anything to do with bowing down to him, that his wife, to console her husband, says, why don't you build these gallows? Build a gallows that's 75 feet tall. We'll hang Mordecai on that. He's like, oh, what a great plan. Well, that's going on. Queen Esther finally is able to go before the king, and, and he says, well, what do you want? I just want to honor Haman. You and Haman, I want to honor you and have Haman, and you guys come together. And so this is going on. And in the meantime, the third day comes along, and at this night, the night in which Haman is ready to go to the king and say to the king, I want all, I want this particular Jew killed. The king can't sleep that night. He says to one of his eunuchs, one of his servants, I want you to bring out the, the book of Chronicles. And I want you to read that to me. And it just happens that when one of the servants was reading, it goes back to the day in which Mordecai, had done a great deed for the king. And he says, was he ever compensated for this? Has he ever been honored for this? And he says, no. Well, it's just at that time that, Mordecai, um, that Haman is ready to come into the king, to, into the inner court. And the king says, Haman, what shall I do for the man that I, I wish to honor? Oh, man, I'm second only to the king. I wonder what he could do for me. I can come up with some good thoughts. And so he starts spewing out words of all the grandeur that he would want the king to do for him. And the king says, what a great idea. 
I want you to put on the robe and get on, set on to this, this animal of your choice, and you're going to take Mordecai around, and you're going to give him honor. Now, if that didn't just throw the whole wrench, I don't know how to say that. Anyway, make it really bad. And, and so here he is. He's got to, probably pouting about this, take Mordecai all around. The person that he wants killed. In the meantime, here on this last day that Esther has for the king and for Haman, he says, what do you request to the queen? She says to the king, listen, I would never bother you with this. If, if everything that was happening to the Jews would only make us to be slaves, I would not have bothered with you because it's such a petty thing just to become slaves for our entire nation. But this is what has happened against us as Jews. And he says, well, who is doing this to you? And then she points right over to the man who has been honored all this time, to Haman. The king is so furious, he leaves the room. And while he leaves the room, here is Haman groveling at the feet of Esther. So much so that when the king comes back into the room, he thinks his wife is, well, being charged at, if you will, by this man. He says, now do you want to take my wife as well? And no sooner that Haman could say anything, his servants closed his mouth, take him out to be hung on the very gallows that were meant for Mordecai. What an amazing turn of events. But you see, the decree had already been sent out to 127 provinces that all Jews are going to be annihilated on this given day. And so the story continues on in which the king has all of his couriers write up real quick that the Jews would be able to defend themselves on this given day. All throughout all the provinces, they could defend themselves, kill their attackers, and take their spoils. And they go out very, very quick. Send that message out. And when that day came, over 75,000 people throughout all the kingdom had been killed, but nothing was taken by spoil. Nothing was plundered. Not one thing. And even within the city of Susa, 300 were killed, but nothing was plundered. And it was on this day that they go back to the king and say, one more day. And so, for the second day, the same thing in the city of Susa. That's when the 300 were killed. And it was on this day that a decree was sent out by the queen and by Mordecai that this would be a day of celebration. And so it was. The king took this lowly Jew, made him second in command, took Haman's place. The irony of that all. Here's this lowly Jewish girl in exile, and she is now reigning as queen over a nation. Is this time and chance? Because didn't, didn't Scripture teach us in the book of Ecclesiastes that time and chance happen to all? Or is this divine providence? I was asking you to remember a word, pure. You know, that's what the Jews, even to this day, celebrate. The Feast of Purim. It takes place in the spring. Somewhere in March or April, I didn't do my studying to, to figure that out. But they remember this day, even now. This is not a law that God set up from the beginning. 
This is something the Jews, because of what they had done, they made it a law among themselves, and it has been handed down for many centuries since then. Now, I want to ask you, when it comes to this, what lessons can you learn? Because there's a lot of stories that if we were to just tell them all by themselves without this total picture, you would think they could be very much disconnected. And so it is throughout the entire Bible. There's a lot of stories that if told by themselves would seem disconnected, doesn't seem like any of significance for God sending Jesus into the world. And yet every one of them plays a part that you can read of in the Bible. Read of the story of Joseph. You know, you meant to put me in that pit. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good, for the salvation of of God's people. And many such stories that we can read. All these things are given. What we have, I believe, are some practical lessons and even some wonderful blessings that we can learn. I want us to read a couple of passages in light of what we've just read. I want you to go to Proverbs 16 and then Proverbs 20. Look at the text here. I know we've been studying Proverbs in that back classroom with Joel and on Saturday mornings. Um, we've been in Proverbs. Look at these two Proverbs and tell me if we can't see divine providence in the story of this book of Esther. Proverbs 16, it says here in verse 9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. How is it that you can decide, today's the day I'm going to go do such and such. And somehow that very decision is what keeps you from being in a hardship that otherwise you would have fallen in. Because of the right place and the right time, so to speak. How does that work that way? Is it time and chance always? How is it that I can have in my heart a plan that I want to do and my plans just don't work out the way I want them to? Does that not happen? I mean, one day Julie and I are buying a house. The next day we're reneging on the house we're wanting to buy. And the next, the next minute we're buying the very house that we reneged on. I mean, how does that happen like that? That's not what I planned. How does it work out? When we talk about providence, there's so much that I don't know about that I'm opening my tongue and I have, I'm very hesitant about the words that I use. Because I don't know to what degree, what definitive microscopic level God is going to intervene within the lives of men and over the choices that we make. Do you buy a Christmas present today or not? What does it have to do with, with God's scheme of redemption? And I don't know the answer to that question. I personally don't go that detailed. But I can tell you what, there's a lot of things that we just take for granted as going on in our lives that God has everything to do with, but He just has not opened His mouth and said so. That's why the book of Esther, if it had not been written in the Bible, we wouldn't have known about this, and yet this would have been an event that had taken place in history. And it would have been just as valid as to the divine providence of God working in the affairs of men. That's what you have. There's all kinds of things like that. So what lessons do you get? Well, I believe that as given here, we've got this very, very important lesson that we might plan things out, but God directs our steps. And we're told in chapter 20 and verse 24, another truth. Very similar. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? 
It's like the 139th Psalm that you can read from verse 10, 11, 12 and onward, where even while I was yet in my mother's womb and yet I've taken a step in my life, God had directed my very steps. How do I understand stuff like that? How do we understand divine providence? Well, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. Well, what was it that verse 29 tells us? Something very important, I believe. Look at the text. Verse 29 of Romans 8, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. We read Ephesians 1 last week, that we have all blessings in Christ Jesus, that this was a plan he had before the foundation of the world. And with all the choices that we made, both good and evil, right and wrong, with all the attitudes that we have, he used natural laws, and he intervened in the lives of men in supernatural ways at times. Also that in the fullness of time, Ephesians 1 verse 8. In the fullness of time, Mark chapter 1 verse 15. We would have the Savior come to this world. Perfect timing, by the way. All the roads, great because of the Romans. A new language system, all because of the Romans. Wait a second. Scratch that. All because God allowed the Romans to have those roads, to have that language system, which would allow for very quick spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ when he came into this world. Amazing. And that's just from one standpoint of history. There's so many other things we could talk about. And so what we're talking about is the fact that God is sovereign. When we're talking about providence, we've got to understand what sovereignty means. And that is that he rules over us even while we have our own choices that we can make. We can choose whether or not we're going to believe this lesson. And guess what? That was your choice. You can choose to accept divine providence or not. I'll disagree with you, but you made your choice to accept it or reject it. And God still overcomes and overrules. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand, but sometimes when we come to this understanding, then we get to read passages like Romans chapter 9 and say, you know, I may not understand it all, but now I can agree with what's being said. Rather than disagree, going, uh-uh. No, that's too Calvinistic-like. To read Romans 9, that's just one for the Calvinists. We need some other Pelagian-like words and, and what have you. We need some others, like Armenian, where, where we could say it's all about our choices. And we lose that healthy balance. We need to understand these things. And if we can understand that all things work together for good to those who love and then God's blessings are not just noted when he saves us from our trials. We even note him when things are going good. Here's a great story. I want to finish with this story. This is a true story that took place. Dr. John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence and president of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University, lived in Tusculum, a country seat at Rocky Hill, about two miles north from the college. And he drove every day to his duties as teacher and president of that college. One day, a neighbor came excitedly into his study at the college and said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away. 
The buggy was smashed into pieces on the rocks. And I escaped unharmed. Rejoice with me in the providence of God. Why? Answered Dr. Witherspoon. I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. You see, I have driven over that road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away. My buggy was never smashed into pieces. I was never hurt. You see, when we're talking about divine providence... You're looking at things oftentimes from like, well, how does God work in our nation? That's why Jimmy was praying what he's doing. And he's asking for God to intervene because we know that the direction of our country is not what we're wanting. It looks pretty grim for those of us who are older and see history in in a very small, minute way. Modern history. It looks pretty grim from a national standpoint. And that's why he's asking for God's intervention. But what about all the days in which God has kept us? where all good has been provided for us every single day, when it's so easy to just go about your lives and not even think about God then. Well, which is more extraordinary? When He saves us from disaster or when He keeps us from it? Right, and when we're told to count our blessings, name them one by one, just as was led for us in song, I mean, it needs to be real to us. It's not just a children's song. It's got to have great conviction within us when we sing that. When we sing these other songs that were led for us this morning. That we're not just coming to church and singing songs because it's going to fill up some time before a ten minute break. Or that this is the song that's meant for the sermon or here's the song that's... It's got to be songs that really mean something to, to me. And that when you sing, you're not just going through and hitting notes. But you're singing with understanding that goes with that spirit of understanding. There's that sincerity. That's the, the lessons and that's the blessings I see that we have when it comes to divine providence. That's the thing that allows me to go to a passage like Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 through verse 33 and go, you know what? My God, who can clothe the lilies of the field? My God, who cares for me and numbers the hair on my head? My God. That I seek to magnify His name, to seek His righteousness. This is my God who's going to take care of me. And isn't that what He tells me in Matthew 6, verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's divine providence. And He does it every single day. Did you know, as we finish with this, that... When you read that ninth chapter, I believe believe it says, or maybe it's in the the last two verses of the eighth chapter, if I'm not mistaken. It says that many of the people within the land of the empire, the Persian empire, they became Jews, it says. That's not one that we typically think of in reading Esther. God says, I will make my name great. My name shall be made known among all peoples. We could read that in Romans 9, verse 17, Exodus 9, verse 16. That's exactly what he did in the book of Esther. That's what we see. 
How much more, brethren, when we give ourselves to the Lord, when we give our whole life to the Lord, as was read by Richard this morning in, in Romans 12, verse 2, that we present our bodies living sacrifices, that we give ourselves unto the Lord. And guess what? If we perish, we perish. But we're not even close to that right now, right? So if we give ourselves to the Lord. Can you imagine what the Lord will do? How many, quote unquote, Jews will come into the kingdom? Because they fear God. Which is the beginning of knowledge, right? Think about these things. 